Our scripture reading this morning is Daniel chapter 4, verse 1 through 18, which is located in our church Bibles on page 740. Please stand if you are able as we read from the Old Testament. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, please be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to, to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs! How mighty his wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, they might, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me. He, who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and, its, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and, it, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from, it, from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me this interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Please be seated.
couple of items for prayer as uh, we come to prayer before we look at this particular passage. Um, on a sad note, in a time that has been increasingly sad, it seems, uh, we've heard from uh, Debbie Johnson that her father, Don, died um, this week in Southern California. They had been expecting it. Debbie had been hoping to go and visit her father, but he has died and they trust gone to be with the Lord. So do reach out to that family, do encourage them as you can. And on a happier note, because these things often come in pairs, Harper Wren Hester was born to Jason and Tibby on Wednesday, 2.56, seven pounds, two ounces. Apparently they are exhausted, but thankful. Let's pray. Father, it seems appropriate with all of these themes that we've been looking at, to look at Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. Lord, as we continue to listen to you, would you be faithful, as you always have been, to reach out to us, to speak to us, to raise again or to answer the questions that you've put to us this week that have been going through our minds, to give us assurance, to give us, Lord, in an age of anxiety, your peace and hope in the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Amen. The first sign of madness, they used to say, is talking to yourself. The second is replying, and the third is leaving the conversation in a huff. I remember when I was in high school, I don't know if you went through this, we had this thing, and we believed it, I suppose, where you were told that the sign of madness was growing hair on your palms, and the next thing we did, of course, was all check our palms to see if hair was growing there. That was the amusements of high school. But I wonder, if you believe in God nowadays, if you're known as a Christian believer, how do people read you? After all, in this day and age, who could seriously believe that there is an invisible, intangible authority from whom you are receiving direction and who is responding to you in various kinds of ways? In our materialistic, naturalistic age, isn't that a definition of madness in many people's book? Well, here is another defini definition of madness, this time from this book, from the Bible, and apparently from that invisible person with whom you've been talking, Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. In other words, the person who denies that the God of Bi the Bible exists in the face of the evidence of creation or of the dictates of their own conscience, is functioning in a kind of insanity. I wonder if that, too, hasn't been the background question of the last few days. People have been asking what's going on, how can this be happening? People in Kiev apparently have been saying that they feel like they're in some kind of bad dream. Is Russia really going to be able to get away with this? Shouldn't somebody stop them? Who will stop them? In this day and age, is it just up to us? because we no longer believe in an interventionist God. 
Well, to all of that, here is the testimony of this remarkable figure in history, a far greater strongman than the president of Russia, and he says there is a God who rules, there is a God who is in charge, there is a God who intervenes as he has intervened in my life. He says it three times, you can read it here, verses 17, verses 25, verse 32. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives that kingdom to whom he will. We're going to look at this entire chapter, which I will grant you is rather long, but do your best. You can look at it in the Church Bible, pages 740 to 742. But to diet together, I want to draw out this phrase that Nebuchadnezzar uses to describe God's working in the world. Verse 35, he says, of his own experience, no one can stay his hand, he says. It's an image of God pressing into our world, sometimes gently, sometimes subtly, sometimes more strongly, but never in such a way as anyone can push him back. So we read in this story again for the second time, he has received a dream. Nebuchadnezzar has received a terrifying, repeating dream. And this time, the dream concerns the fate of a tree, which might not be a particularly horrifying prospect for you, but for the Babylonian kings who believed that a sacred tree was the source of their power, it was an ominous sign. Indeed, Nebuchadnezzar himself, he is told by Daniel, is represented by that tree. And the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is going to cut him down to size unless he turns from his sins and turns towards righteousness. But as we read this story, we discover, like us, the king in his ease, relying on his prosperity, forgets the crisis, ignores the dream and its warning, and precisely one year later, he is struck down by this humiliating illness which takes his kingdom from him until some seven years later when he learns his lesson and God restores his mind and kingdom to him. So how does God reign? This is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. The God who reigns is not absent or apathetic. He presses into our lives and to yield to him brings the first fruit of a kind of sanity. So we're going to look at the three ways that God presses into our lives and into our world as we look at this whole chapter, again, pages 740 to 742. First, verses 1 to 3, what do we see here? God presses in to reach us. God presses to reach us. Here is a quite extraordinary testimony of a changed man. What was it that we read just last week at the end of chapter 3? The way that our Bibles are uh, read and uh, organized with the chapter divisions, we often forget to read them as if they are continuous, but this was only a few verses ago. There we found Nebuchadnezzar the Great decreeing, I make a decree, any people, nation or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. Compare that with this in chapter 4, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. No longer the tearing limb from limb, no longer the houses in ruins, no longer the be terrified and bow down, but instead, peace be multiplied to you. 
see evidence of a quite changed mind. It reminds me of the kind of change, you remember, that comes on the man that Jesus encountered in the tombs, in the graveyards of the Gerasenes in Luke chapter 8. He was living there, and he was, when Jesus first met him, possessed by demons. And we read that the villagers who came after hearing that the man had been healed found him now clothed and in his right mind. And this was their question. Who could heal such a man? Who would want to? Well, such a person would have to be the Most High God. And that's why we read in Luke 8 that when the villagers saw this man, whom they had previously feared, now in his right mind, Luke says, they were suddenly afraid again. Not this time of that man, but of Christ and of the power of his peace. You know, mental illness, which encompasses everything from anxiety and depression to dementia and to personality disorders, describes apparently 25% of the adult population of the United States, and we know that that is a um, limited figure because it was taken before COVID. We see that in the Bible. We see demonic possession, which describes a rare thing nowadays in the Western world, but nevertheless a reality of power encounter. And we also see the discipline of God through suffering. They are all them quite distinct things. You can be experiencing one of those and not the others, or perhaps have a combination of them. Yet the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar, and we don't know which of these entirely he was suffering from, is that you should not focus on his story alone, he says, but on the Most High God who has reached him. Look at verse 2. The signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. I found myself like the rest of us. I was thinking on this as, as Janice was praying and as Randy was leading this morning, getting really sad this week in the last few days, as no doubt you have, watching the news from Ukraine, watching the news from um, Kharkiv and Kiev and, and Lviv, anxious for there to be something that would stop this war. What's happening is quite evidently, as even the world will say, evil at work. And we should be praying. So we're going to restart our monthly prayer meeting and begin by praying largely for Ukraine next Sunday at 7 o'clock. But I've been personally convicted that there's one person that I haven't been praying for, and I've been convicted of this reading this passage. He is an isolated and proud man, a man perhaps that at this point only God can reach, to pray that God would intervene. And for the sake of the people of Ukraine and Russia and the world, and for his own sake, turn the president of Russia somehow to humility and to mercy. You know, we have an ability to separate current figures in history from those in the past, but Vladimir Putin is not that different to Nebuchadnezzar. But this, after all, is our missionary God. Not someone who simply wants to reach the civilized people who play by his rules, but someone who wants to reach the very worst of people, people like Nebuchadnezzar. How do we know that? Well, we know that because that's our testimony too. This is what we resonate with in what he says, isn't it? God has come looking for us. Who are we? We are sinners and rebels and wretches. And so when he says how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, we can sing that on a Sunday morning because that's been our experience. And Jesus says to us, if you then who are evil 
know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? This is the picture of a generous, loving being motivated by holiness and love to pursue people, to reach out to them, to initiate relationship with them. I don't know if you've read C.S. Lewis's book, Miracles. It's one of his best, I think, and is often overlooked. This is one of the things he says. The pantheist's God does nothing, demands nothing. He is there for you if you wish for him, like a book on a shelf. He will not pursue you. So, when the line pulls at your hand, when something breathes beside you in the darkness, it's always shocking to meet life where we thought we were alone. And so 21st century materialistic human beings have discovered the first glimpses, again, that they are not alone but need the creator and the redeemer. There are two mistakes I think we all tend to make, regardless of where we stand with God. The first is to imagine is that we must find God. And the second is to believe that we're not the kind of people that God would be interested in finding. Again, this story is a contradiction of that misassumption. This is the transformation of a man who had not sought it. A picture of the very person that we would say is beyond God's help. God came looking for him. Again, notice, not to crush him, but to change him, reaching him with his peace. Second, and this is the bulk, isn't it, of this chapter, the story of the dream, God presses to humble us. Verses 16 through 17, let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. Someone has said that when it comes to the Christian church, mental illness is the no casserole illness because when people discover that you are battling depression or anxiety or some other mental struggle, no one will bring you a casserole. I hope that's not true. I hope that's not true of our church because mental illness is just as much a part of the fall as real, as much expected as physical illness is. The Most High rules the kingdom of men, which must mean that he can use even an illness like this for this man's good and for his glory. Perhaps you know how mental illness has impacted the people of the Christian church down through the centuries. John Bunyan, David Brainyard, William Cooper, Charles Spurgeon, Christina Rossetti, John Piper, to name but a fraction of them. I want to recommend to you a resource if you are seeking to care for somebody, love somebody who's going through this, or perhaps you yourself are. It's a book called Darkness is My Only Companion. It's a quite excellent Christian response to mental illness. But there's nothing random about this illness. God, you'll notice, has sent it specifically not to crush Nebuchadnezzar, but to teach him. There are little teasers in the imagery that is given here, like this curious image of the bronze and the iron band around the tree stump, verse 15. Farmers used to put metal bands around the stump of trees to stop them from cracking and from rotting, in a sense to, to preserve them against their own destruction. So here it is with Nebuchadnezzar. God is humbling him, but he will not abandon him. He will not 
let him be destroyed, even through this severe mercy. And notice that's Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. He describes how he was at ease in his house, prospering in his palace. One imagines him looking out over the broad avenues of the rebuilt Babylon, admiring his handiwork, looking at this fine uh, lapis lazuli, this, this blue glass-like stone which marked the walls of those avenues, and the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the great wonders of the world, which he was the architect of. And he's telling myself as he, as himself as he looks at these things, my greatness has grown. It reaches now to heaven, which is ironic because Daniel has told us with quite some artistry in chapter 1, he hasn't misspoken himself. He says this is the land of Shinar because that is the name that was given in Genesis to Babel and to the Tower of Babel, like a great tree rising to the heavens and God has made a stump of that monument now to human arrogance, again this time in the land and in the mind of its king. Why would, send, why would God send Nebuchadnezzar a dream? Why warn him? Why not just simply take him out? Well, verse 27, again, it is to give him this severe mercy if he will break off his sins. Because contrary, right, contrary to our own fears when we're going through something like this, contrary to what you will hear, the Bible says God is not arbitrary, but he is patient and reasonable. I don't know if there's a point in the day for you. It's usually for me just before uh, dinner time where I get impatient and unreasonable. And I think of this psalm, Psalm 32. Don't be stupid. I sometimes put my name in there. Don't be stupid, constable. Like horses and mules that must be led with ropes to make them obey. Or Ezekiel 18. Put all of your rebellion behind you and find yourself a new heart and a new spirit. For why would you die, O Israel? Why would you die? Perhaps part of the encouragement of this chapter to see the way God works with, with humans is to see, as Mike White reminded me of this the other day, when God put a calling in your life, he said, he factored in your stupidity. But this is the point, isn't it? It's not unlike the picture of God wrestling with Jacob in Genesis. God has no desire to reduce Jacob to a man who will always forever after walk with a limp, but Jacob leaves him little choice. So here a whole year is given to Nebuchadnezzar to heed this warning. This is so often how the Holy Spirit works. He, he comes, he convicts, he speaks, he warns, and then if we will not listen, he goes away for a time before he comes back again. And this man in his pride resists God as we do, but here is a gentle warning. God hasn't changed. Nebuchadnezzar is just a picture, ultimately, of any man or woman that's on the run from God. And that can happen most often in churches where people will come and do the religious things. But behind the scenes, they're running from God. They found their salvation and their security and shelter in something else. And because God loves us, he doesn't wish to, to bring us to some extremity. But he will if he has to. Why would he do so? Well, because you matter to him, because you're his son, you're his daughter, and because not to discipline you is to say that neither of those things are true. Besides, our pride is more dangerous to him than his punishment, more dangerous to us. 
So this is the warning shot across the bows, isn't it? That where we have known success, there also will lie temptation for our own hearts to be hardened against God. Verse 37, the warning to those who continue to walk in pride, he is able to humble them. And finally, verses 29 through 37, God presses to redeem. We read here in verse 33 that this is what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. This, you'll notice now, not his testimony. He's no longer the narrator, but at this point, because he couldn't speak, presumably, he was driven from among men. The narrator says, he ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails, a nice touch here, were like bird's claws. There have been lots of theories as to what sort of disease Nebuchadnezzar was suffering from. Sigmund Freud thought it possible that a mental illness could start with a dream where a delusion would become so embedded that if you believed you were a tree or a cow, it would gain a foothold somehow in your physical real life. Carl Jung saw Nebuchadnezzar as the complete regressive degeneration of a man who has overreached himself. And there is actually a psychological disorder. I looked this up, boanthropy, which is thankfully rare, where people come to believe they are cows and they're driven to do things that cows do. I'm tempted to add that's probably moose to you. But of course, people in a fallen world will get sick, even kings, right? Without it being an extraordinary interventioning word, work of God. So King George III, you may not know this, famously suffered after the American Revolution from a mental illness that made him finish every sentence with the word peacock and where he was found shaking hands with a tree that he believed was the king of Russia. See what you did? But all of these diagnoses of Nebuchadnezzar attempt to naturalize his illness and take away any suggestion of God's working out of the equation. It's quite possible that this was actually a tailor-made psychological illness and a visibly instructive one. So imagining himself to be like one of his half-human, half-animal deities, Nebuchadnezzar, notice, has been made to be like that. He is the physical embodiment of the Lamassu, which the Babylonians worshipped, part bird, part bull, and far less than human. And the punishment, notice, wasn't just for him to see. It was, though they tried to hide him away, verse 17, that the living would know that the people of the earth who so feared this man would come to see, rather, the king who had put him under this. But in God's grace, the day did come, verse 34, when Nebuchadnezzar lifts his eyes to heaven and he blesses the Most High. One application of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar is to face the fact that if God could use this illness in this man's life to God's glory, well, then he might work with many through all kinds of mental illness. What I found with my father during the three years of his dementia is that the man for all of his life, who had been a gentle and very kind but very principled and resolute atheist, dramatically changed under his experience with dementia. For the first time, and I don't know if you've been through this, I experienced some guilt dealing with a man that I knew was no longer the man that he had been before, wondering if that man who had been would object to me praying with him. 
or me reading the Bible with him, or going through the gospel with him in simple terms, and to hear his responses to the pictures of scripture and to the promises of Jesus. But it struck me that man no longer existed. Here was a new man by the grace of God. And I think this is a true thing that God is doing among many who are suffering from mental illness across the spectrum. Did my father come to faith? I don't know for sure, but I am sure that God could reach such a person and bring him safe across the line. You see, there is something wonderful about this story that goes, doesn't it, way beyond the scoreline, God won, Nebuchadnezzar zero. Could it be that God is giving us permission, encouragement through this story to reach out to millions of people who are suffering from mental illness in one way or another? My own experience suggests that he can and does. Someone once joked, why is it that when we talk to God, it's called prayer, and when we, talk, we hear from God, it's called schizophrenia? This whole chapter is a challenge to the very idea that we live in a universe where God will leave us alone. Not so. In all our ways, here is an interventionist God. How do we begin, in closing, to apply any of this? Well, certainly, if you think you need help, a great place to start is in our support groups. It's very grateful to Angie for her courage in speaking this morning. And if you need help, our counseling uh, program, our lay counseling program and ministry in this church is quite excellent. And if you need help or if you know someone who does, there's no shame in it. There's no stigma attached to it. Certainly, there should not be. Contact Janice Bilger in that regard. But here's the rule of thumb, right? Like the, the airlines say about oxygen masks, you need to make sure you're getting enough oxygen before you seek to help others. The Bible says, verse uh, chapter 26 of Isaiah, you will keep them in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Like the bumper sticker used to say, no God, no peace, no God, no peace. Are you spending time talking to the person who is the sole means of your peace, mentally too. Do we spend time talking to him daily? It's actually, they've discovered, not a sign of madness at all, but a sign of sanity that one would talk to oneself, and all the more so, surely, when you're talking to your creator. Reading the Bible, confessing what's really going on with you, and hearing from him the pardon, the assurance of his forgiveness in the gospel singing songs of praise, and then going out to bear the burdens of others. And here is Jesus, who after all his own family pronounced insane, who his enemies declared possessed, and yet who himself restored many to their right minds. Let me remind you, whatever your condition, whatever your circumstance this morning, he can give you his peace. If you will let him do so, he will bring peace to you in his kindness and in his rule. So considering the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar, let's pray. Jesus said, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. And the peace that I give is a gift that the world cannot give. 
So, Father, after such a sad time as this, these last two years, in such a sad time, still this broken world continues. We lift to you our own broken worlds, perhaps the storms and the ravages of our own minds still seeking peace. For the people that we know who we dearly long would come to know your peace, Lord, would you reign, would you rule, would you make known your peace, even through us, in Christ's name.